The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a new quarterly podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. On today's episode of Need to Know, I am joined by author and journalist Ian Ballantyne from Warships International Fleet Review magazine. Ian and I discuss the recent strikes in Syria and we look at the wider implications from a naval and military perspective. But before we begin, um, just a very quick advert for budding writers out there. Are you a writer or producer working on a military drama like The Last Post or Our Girl? Or are you making an espionage series to rival spooks? Well, Rossa McPhillips MBE is here to help. He is a former soldier in British military intelligence and he is offering a one-day course to writers, directors and producers on the facts about the armed forces, its culture, traditions and how they operate overseas in conflict zones from his first-hand perspective. The course will open up a door to the closed world of the intelligence services and course participants will get an opportunity to see what the role of an intelligence officer is really like as they take part in a realistic conflict simulation exercise where they must make quick decisions based on disparate intelligence data to prevent a hypothetical terrorist attack. For more information about this course, please email rossa at rossa.mcphillips at googlemail.com. Rossa is spelled R-O-S-S-A dot McPhillips, which is M-C-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. The venue is typically the Royal Holloway, University of London at 11 Bedford Square, London, WC1B3R. Dates are to be confirmed, but the course usually operates between 10am and 6pm. And the price is £85 or £75 for concessions. Drop Rosser an email and he'll let you know about course dates. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Ian, welcome to Need to Know. Hello. First of all, just before we begin, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, just for listeners who are not familiar with you? I'm the editor of uh, International Global Naval News magazine called Warships International Fleet Reviews. a lot of internationals in there. Um, that's because it um, covers naval geopolitics if you like and the activities of navies around the world um, mainly from a, maybe an anglo-centric point of view but also other navies um, such as in latin america the russians the chinese whatever so that's one of my jobs my day job and i also write naval history books including one recently on submarine warfare called the deadly trade Excellent. Well, we're going to have a quick chat. Of, well, I say quick, it might not be quick, but we're going to have a, a bit of a chat about the recent military action in Syria. Um, so I'll just uh, just quickly frame it for people. So on the 7th of April, there was a chemical attack against civilians in Douma, Syria. 70 people were reportedly killed and a 1,000 people suffered effects from the attack. The bombs in question were suspected to be filled with chemical munitions such as chlorine gas and sarin. There's been a lot of debate about who has been responsible for the for the initial chemical attack on the 7th. 
Ian, um, do you think it's hard to believe that the Syrian government was behind the chemical attack in Douma? No, it's not hard to believe it, but I think the problem we have now with this um, use of information warfare by the Russians and also obviously the people they work with is that even when people are telling the truth, you don't know that they're telling the truth. So it's kind of backfiring on them in that because they uh, cry wolf about everything or they, they tend to deploy all sorts of uh, tactics uh, favoured by obviously the KGB in the past, such as deliberate disinformation, mm. you then think that everything they deny actually happened. Yeah. But in this case, I don't think it's hard to believe that actually the Syrian regime would have done this because they've been... Um, uh, proved to have uh, done it before by international inspectors. Yeah, and there's a brilliant infographic by the United Nations from the 15th of January um, where they just list all the kind of attacks that the regime have been responsible for um, involving kind of chemical weapons. So it's, yeah, they've got a, a... Syria do seem to have a history of using this as a technique, don't they? Yeah, and the, the thing about it, that from a naval point of view, because obviously I've looked at this over the years mm. from my magazine's point of view... Um, is that there was a huge effort by uh, America, Russia, Britain, um, Denmark, you know, various NATO allies to actually take chemical warfare agents out of Syria and actually disperse and destroy them at sea and in designated ports. So there was a massive effort uh, a few years ago to do all this and a great play was made of that. So it's just absolutely uh, incredible that despite all of that and the, the assurances from the Russians the Syrians would get rid of all this stuff and all these navies taking this stuff out on board a special ship devised for the job of, of neutralising these uh, agents that actually they've retained them and have actually used them. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. And um, so as a consequence of this attack, then the on the 14th of April, the US, UK and French uh, launched strikes against targets in Syria. And this is all despite um, from threats from the Russian government of retaliation. I mean, it's certainly um, the day before the strikes online, it felt like World War Three was about to break out. And um, yeah, and then, you know, it seemed to kind of slightly, in terms of World War III, it certainly seemed to fizzle out a little bit. But Ian, can you just tell us a little bit about sort of those strikes on the 14th of April? Yeah, they were mainly from the sea. So you had um, uh, an American cruiser and an American destroyer in the Red Sea firing the bulk of the cruise missiles that were used, and there were over 100 fired from the air and also from the sea. And most of them came from the sea. So you had a cruiser and a destroyer, both American, firing from the Red Sea, and also an American destroyer firing from the Arabian Gulf, and then uh, a U.S. Navy submarine firing from the eastern Mediterranean along with a French frigate firing cruise missiles as well. And then, of course, you had French, American, and uh, British aircraft also taking part on a smaller scale, uh, to be honest, and that's not because I'm biased in terms of uh, navies, but that's the reality of it. There's more firepower was unleashed from the sea because those warships were packed with cruise missiles yeah and i suppose well i suppose cruise missiles number one are very accurate number two it lowers the risk to the um well to allied forces against syria doesn't it in this case it was lowering the risk to the russians mm. and it's notable that none of the targets were within what's called the air defense zone the russian air defense zone uh, nor did they go anywhere near where russian military personnel or any other russians could be killed or injured and uh, it's said that that was because there was a lot of back-channel discussion between the U.S. military and also the uh, the Russians. So it was all very 
carefully worked out so it wouldn't actually provoke uh, a clash or that threatened um, attack from the Russians against launching ships and aircraft that came before it and which made us all think, here we go, this is uh, this could get very dangerous. Yeah, and can you just tell us a little bit about what the Russian air defence zone is, just for those who are not familiar with that? It's like an umbrella, a defensive umbrella, using very sophisticated and uh, presumably very advanced uh, air defence missiles um, over parts of Syria where Russia is operating or feels that it's crucial strategic interest line in particular the naval uh, base at tartus on the uh, the coast of syria where you saw um uh, an exfiltration of um i think 11 uh, naval vessels including a submarine and possibly a warship or two and supply vessels out to sea ahead of the american strikes because at that stage they were a bit worried that the some of the cruise missiles would hit the naval base at tartus which is the key thing that Russia is fighting to preserve their toehold for its navy in in Syria. Yeah. So what did the uh, Allied forces target in Syria? I'm not a deep specialist on such matters, but clearly they targeted chemical warfare facilities, uh, which they felt were were participating in the manufacturing or storage of whatever was used in Douma and decided to destroy it. But it is said that some of the key facilities and storage areas actually were within the Russian air defence zone, so actually they weren't hit. And as you were saying, they're not targeting Russian assets on purpose um, to not sort of provoke a response from Russia, is that right? Yeah, I think the most um, chilling aspect of it was something that was said by the UN Secretary General when he, he pointed out that we're now into a new Cold War and yet all the checks and balances of the old Cold War are no longer there and that's something that my magazine... Um, has been going on about via various articles uh, by certain contributors and also I'm sure other people in other publications and something that I refer to in the Deadly Trade book is the fact that we're now in a very, very dangerous era where it seems a lot of um, the checks and balances and what you might call the mature uh, thinking on uh, Armageddon, potential Armageddon that is risked between um, Russia and America whenever they go almost toe-to-toe is, uh, is not there, and it's very, very dangerous and very worrying. So I think the uh, Secretary-General was quite correct in his analysis that we're in a very dangerous era. And I think that actually what we saw in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, just a few weeks ago, rather a few days ago, uh, was probably only the beginning of uh, a very tense period between the superpowers, the Russians and the Americans. Yeah, yeah. Well, quick thing about more about the strike. So in the UK... Um you know, with these things, they uh, always sort of get politicised, and in some respects, rightly so. Um, there's a what is the sort of procedure for ordering these strikes? Because, um, as I believe, the Prime Minister Theresa May did not actually seek a parliamentary vote on the on this strike, and some people took that as controversial. I think, um, in terms of actions like this, where it's brief, limited, and precise, then the the Prime Minister can order them, authorise them without getting prior parliamentary approval. And uh, in fact, in the past, there have been occasions where more major actions have happened and the debate and the vote came after the action. And I think it was David Cameron who really set the precedent for waiting until the parliamentary vote had happened before deciding what to do. But it is, it is customary whenever there's any major actions, such as committing troops to something like the Iraq War or uh, a world war, to have a debate in Parliament, because, of course, that's so much bigger 
so much more major and it could involve something that's an existential threat to the UK. So that has to have a full parliamentary debate before any kind of declaration of war. Um, but in this case, I guess it was felt that it was such a, a small scale of um, attack, at least that's how it turned out, that uh, they didn't need to do that. And I think there was a lot of political pressure on Theresa May to take part in this after the failure in 2013 for Britain to do anything and the red lines in terms of chemical warfare weaponry being crossed by the Syrians and I think that pressure was on her to to not allow something to stay uh, the UK's hand and also because of course Parliament came back on the Monday and, and the strikes happened on the Saturday so there should be debate in Parliament there should be a vote but it isn't always uh, necessary technically for the Prime Minister and the government to take action. Yeah, and since the Iraq War, every potential military action has drawn a comparison. How is this sort of mission in Syria different from Iraq? Uh, it's different from Iraq mainly because uh, weapons of mass destruction, chemical, uh, and chemical warfare weapons um, have actually been used and it's been proved by an independent body, at least it was in 2017. So there, there is a definite precedent within the Syrian war, and as we, you, just, you mentioned just earlier, for these weapons having been used, whereas in Iraq it was a, a different scale, I suppose. There were worries about a greater scale of weaponry and missiles and all the rest of it, but it turned out not to be the case and hadn't probably been the case for some time. So that was a major um, invasion of a country launched when there was no actual recent um, evidence, apart from, of course, the, the, the attack at Halabja, uh, I believe, in uh, the 1980s, where quite a lot of people were killed. So it's very complicated. You're, you're kind of taking action um, when the evidence is sometimes a bit uh, mysterious. But, um, I mean, the Iraq war was completely different. It was a long lead-in, and clearly um, it was a case of unfinished business for the Americans to go in and depose Saddam. So it's not the same kind of thing at all, because there's no regime, re, regime change being uh, threatened here. It's just a strike on chemical warfare facilities. Yeah, yeah. And um, so what have, you, what have the French, UK and US forces sort of been up to in the region since those strikes on the 14th of April? A lot of um, naval firepower gathering at sea. Um, and this obviously is out of sight and out of mind. So what, what you have is you have the Americans sending a massive uh, U.S. Navy strike carrier, the Harry S. Truman, to, to the Mediterranean along with her, her strike group. Uh, and uh, most of her escorts also carry dozens of cruise missiles. You have the Russians sending out their, their sh warships from um, the, the Black Sea and also uh, the Baltic to reinforce or maintain their permanent presence in the eastern Mediterranean and the British have had a destroyer in the Mediterranean, there are NATO task groups, uh, the, the Russians deployed an anti-submarine warfare uh, task group as I mentioned um, on the, the website of uh, my magazine, um, an ASW task group in the northern fleet in the Arctic to supposedly train in hunting uh, submarines uh, but that may well have been cover for um, sanitising waters for Russian nuclear-powered submarines to be deployed to the Mediterranean to trail and shadow the Harry S. Truman. So this is all very much like uh, the Cold War. 
um, it's certainly at sea. But it's not, it's not on the same scale, but certainly a lot of the same kind of manoeuvres are going on. Yeah, and I was reading one of your articles earlier, you mentioned that the, the Russians have this thing known as the carrier killer um, sort yeah. of deployed in the region. We don't know, like any submarine, apart from uh, the John Warner, which fired cruise missiles into Syria, we don't know uh, in recent weeks what submarine is actually where, for real, for sure. Because mm. the whole point of submarines is stealth, and you can have an effect with a submarine without it actually being there. You just have to say it's there if it's a nuclear-powered one, because nobody will know it's there. So the, the Oscar II submarine we're talking about is the Oriole, and she was recently refitted uh, with more effective missiles and can fire salvos, as has been her purpose since the Cold War, really. She's an old submarine, but, you know, modernised, to, to attack carriers and sink them. She's an Oscar II, so her job is, uh, as an Oscar II-class submarine, is to attack carriers. Now, nobody's saying she's actually going to attack a carrier, and it could be she's still... Um, up there in the Kola Peninsula. But, you know, if the Russians were looking to a submarine that they should deploy, uh, or submarines they should deploy, to effectively shadow and counter the American presence, the Oriole would be one, and also maybe an Akuda two as well, or other nuclear-powered submarines. But, you know, for sure, we don't know they're there, but it's, um, it's, it's a potential move and a likely move. Yeah, and what kind of countermeasures do the Americans, and even the Royal Navy and French Navy have um, against these kind of submarines? There's a whole array of sensors. It could be um, anti-submarine warfare ships like frigates and potentially destroyers with the same capability, or it could be maritime patrol aircraft that can drop sonar buoys to listen and then continue circling over sea areas to, to, to monitor what may or may not be going under the sea. But the best counter to a nuclear-powered submarine is another nuclear-powered submarine. So, for instance, um, it is said, reportedly uh, said, that um, during the Syrian strikes, HMS um, whatever, it could be any one of Britain's submarines, a Stute-class submarine or Trafalgar-class submarine, uh, was stationed somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean and was given the job of listening for, on a very powerful sonar, um, for potential Russian submarines, because there were two kilo-class submarines, diesel-electric submarines out there under the sea in the eastern Mediterranean, which are very quiet on battery power, but don't have the same power in terms of firepower or sensors or able to um, pick up potential enemy submarines as a nuclear-powered submarine. So that's a long-winded way of saying that the best thing you need to have in your armory to uh, find and trail another submarine is a nuclear-powered submarine. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, um... You sort of touched on this earlier, but what are Russia's interests in Syria? Why are they so focused on it? A lot of the uh, interests that uh, the Russians have in places around the world are quite kind of um, old-fashioned in some ways, but they relate to Russia's perspective from the time of uh, Peter the Great, that it, it can be closed in by other powers if it doesn't have access to the sea. So people may find that hard to understand because in the media and maybe in a lot of western military thinking it's all about land and looking to the land and the massive russian military presence on land but in fact if you look at russian history certainly since the end of the second world war the main thing that they are obsessed with uh, is strategic access to the open sea so if you look to the north they've got that kind of sewn up with the uh, possession of murmansk and archangel and the whole of the arctic north they can gain access up there uh, in, in the south, you've got the Black Sea, 
and they, they, they can't necessarily get through to the Black Sea with their naval forces because, of course, the, the Turks, who are uh, part of NATO, the, the Turkish naval forces or Turkish government uh, control access to and from the Black Sea. So in the eastern Mediterranean, there is this base at Tartus, which the Russians have had for decades and which they are determined to maintain, and they are determined to do that so that they still have influence uh, in the Mediterranean and also down in uh, other parts of the Middle East. And uh, that is something that they have at the top of their agenda. And it's a major reason why the Russians annexed uh, the, Ukraine, um, the Crimea was to ensure that they would always have the main naval base and other bases in the Crimean Peninsula to, uh, to send their warships out of the Black Sea. And then once they're out of the Black Sea, even if the Turkish Straits are cut off, are controlled by NATO, they have a naval task group in the eastern Mediterranean. Yeah. And do you think do you think Russia could potentially go all the way in the defence of this? I think the Russians will go as far as they can uh, in different ways. I don't think you can necessarily, necessarily expect them to uh, conventionally uh, defend it with uh, military and naval forces. Because the reality is that although Russia is modernising uh, submarine forces, frigates and destroyers, making them more capable, turning them out, and especially its nuclear-powered submarine forces. Uh, as it stands right now, uh, it isn't a match for America or NATO. So it has to be careful that it pursues a balance of, um, shall we say, non-conventional defence um, policy and also conventional defence policy. So it uses the units it has, and a lot of its warships, certainly in the eastern Mediterranean, are uh, quite elderly, but it uses them in ways that will impress allies and also make NATO think before it does anything. And then, of course, it uses information warfare and uh, hybrid warfare, if you like to call it that, and other things to kind of put the West off balance. So I think it, it goes as far as it can to defend its interests, but it's certainly very, very, very determined to be considered a superpower that matters. Yeah, yeah. And we, yeah, as you mentioned, the hybrid warfare, we've certainly seen that really sort of go off on steroids, um, certainly after the Scripple um, poisoning yeah. a few, uh, well, last month and obviously with the action in Syria. There's a lot of talk about this, and um, I think it's called the Gerasimov Doctrine after the, the head of the Russian army who, uh, who came up with this idea that actually sometimes um, non-military policies or non-offensive uh, military policies are actually more powerful or as powerful as sometimes military uh, tools. Uh, it doesn't mean the military aren't conducting operations, it just means that they do it under the cloak of other things and that the intelligence services and other aspects of um, hybrid warfare are in play. Uh, but it's quite interesting that shortly after the Syrian strikes went in, uh, General Gerasimov met with uh, Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, an American general uh, from NATO in um, Azerbaijan, for a meeting to agree um, certain protocols uh, to prevent things from escalating. Now that, because the action in Syria was taken outside of NATO, that was obviously not um, something that was a direct discussion. But of course, an American general talking to a Russian general will inevitably, inevitably pass back um, details to his bosses in Washington, D.C., and uh, establish channels of communication. The reason I mention that is I think there's a worry there in the Russian mind 
that actually sometime uh, in the future they might go too far. There's a certain mindset in Russia that that um, since the 90s, because uh, they had a very bad 90s, that sort of NATO's ganging up on them and the, the West is trying to undermine Russia. Um, and it's a sort of very dangerous mindset, really. Yeah, I mean, you, if you... Uh, I might have mentioned in a previous podcast, if you turn the, the map round and look at the world from Moscow's point of view, and this, this idea of access to the sea is all part of it, uh, it does look like um, NATO and other powers can close in on Russia and suffocate it um, by, by um, restricting access. And it is true that I think in the glow of um, the post-Cold War victory over the Soviet Union and uh, the fragmentation of uh, the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, the end of the Warsaw Pact, people perhaps were a little bit too rash in pushing eastwards and coming up with new ideas to, uh, to put, you know, missile interceptors on, um, on certain countries' soil. Uh, and that did alienate the Russians and upset their dignity and meant that they felt they weren't being taken seriously. But at the same time, of course, you know, all nations have a right to live um, in freedom and without fear of being invaded or um, taken back into somebody's orbit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these Eastern European countries effectively were occupied by Russia since the end of the Second World War and formed what was known as the Eastern Bloc. Uh, there are quite a few people out there who don't understand that. What, they don't understand that now, you mean? Because yeah, old, yeah, there's quite a few people who just um, don't seem to grasp that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know about yourself, but I, I did visit the Soviet Union at the end of... Um, the Cold War and also um, other parts of Eastern Europe in the immediate aftermath and to see uh, Russia and certainly some of the far-flung parts of Russia as well as Moscow and St. Petersburg and then to go to Latvia and the Czech Republic um, as it became um, and see uh, how those uh, countries had basically um, decayed under the, the Russian yoke and also how inefficient uh, the Russian economy was, and um, how living standards were so poor. Um, it, it didn't work, and by the end of it, you know, it was collapsing. And, of course, those Eastern European countries uh, were under that uh, domination. And uh, so it's only right that they have their chance at freedom. But at the same time, I think we, we needed to, and still need to, just bear in mind <laughs> that the Russians still retain thousands of nuclear warheads yeah so it's a delicate delicate dance that we have to, to yeah, do with russia yeah, really don't we <laughs> to both yeah we do yeah yeah to both preserve other people's freedoms our freedoms and and their national interests <laughs> yeah exactly they, they've got national interests and um we do have to respect them but we also have to be wary of the fact that um sometimes their methods seem to be uh less than friendly yeah yeah. Well, Ian, are there any uh, final thoughts we wrap up that are important to you that we may not have covered on this topic? Um, well, I think the astonishing thing for me is uh, there's two things that are kind of sort of surprising to me, but it shouldn't be, is that um, when I wrote um, my book, uh, when I finished writing my book you know, several months ago, The Deadly Trade, uh, I made the comment that only the dead have seen the end of submarine warfare because mm. that's, a, that's a phrase that's often attributed to a Greek uh, philosopher. In fact, was said by a Spanish philosopher poet called George uh, Santayana. And he actually said that, you know, um, only the dead have seen the last of war. But I, I didn't actually believe when I said only the dead um, have seen the last of submarine warfare that, that within a few months we'd actually have uh, an American submarine firing cruise missiles into, um, 
into uh, into Syria or anywhere else. I mean, although I, I realised it was likely, I don't think I expected it to be quite so soon. But it's amazing how today, particularly with um, uh, the febrile atmosphere created by instant communication, social media and national leaders and countries making accusations, it's amazing how quickly things can, can pivot from... Um, slagging matches um, over the airwaves or on social media into actual action. So yeah. I, I found that, you know, surprising that it happened so quickly. Um, and, and I think when it comes to the magazine, my magazine celebrating 20 years um, this year, Warships Magazine. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for giving me the plug. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, um, I, I had to write an essay that looked at where we were 20 years ago for the, the latest edition and where we are now. And um, it was sad that um, 20 years ago, it was the end of the Cold War. It was a few years after the Cold War, but that had ended. And really the seas were peaceful. There was, there was the rule of law and that um, uh, everything seemed to be settled down after the end of the Cold War, with the exception of containing Saddam. But then over the years, with various episodes and wars and conflicts and piracy and terrorism, we've now kind of come full circle and the wheel has turned, and it's uh, quite extraordinary that we're now back where we are with, you know, um, East and West being at loggerheads. Yeah, and as you said earlier, you know, we don't have the order and the procedures in place that we had, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and, um, it, it, you know, people still, I think there are some people out there who still seem to think that we're in that post-Cold War bubble, but actually, in some respects, it's far more dangerous now than it ever was before. Yeah, I would agree. It is, it is very much more dangerous. And I think people do, uh, when I say people, I mean our national uh, political and possibly military leaders need to snap out of it because if they, if they only pay attention to what's going on out there uh, in terms of the way that Russia, for example, is developing uh, new weaponry and uh, technology. And it's not just Russia. There's also potential conflict in the South China Sea and, and among other nations as well around the world. Things really are in a very kind of um, dangerous state. And we don't want to go, go to bed um, overwhelmingly depressed, but we need to start thinking in grown-up ways about how to prevent these uh, disputes turning into something much, much worse because the consequences are absolutely horrific if they get it wrong. So they need to start thinking very deeply. Yeah, they do indeed. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? I have a website called um, ianballantine.com which lists the uh, various things I've done, the books, the magazine, whatever. Or they can go to warshipsifr.com which is where the magazine puts up uh, commentaries and things and also gives details of things that are coming out. So that's where I'm, I'm up to things and that's where they can find out more. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Ian. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know. <laughs>